Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Toledot or Toldot, and talking about generations, and we'll get to that word here in just a moment because it actually factors in quite mightily in this particular passage. It goes over Genesis 25, verse 19, going through chapter 28, verse 9. We'll be picking up a little bit of the Haftarah portion, the section from Malachi chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, and also touching on a bit from the passage we just read there in Matthew chapter 10. But just a bit of the big picture of what we're looking at here in this particular passage. And some of it might look, oh, we're just talking about ancient names, ancient peoples, peoples long ago, long gone. What difference does it make? What bearing does it have on the world here today? But one of the things that we can get from just this particular passage starting out is that who we come from does not necessarily mean that is who we are. So that's the starting point, that we may come from bad stock or having a troubled past, have maybe father or mother that are not great or not there at all, have one problem after another. Even our own personal past may be just terrible, something we may have just gone down headlong down the wrong road. But do we keep running on down that same road or do we turn a different way and go a different path around it? One of the lessons that we get from this particular passage is, no, it doesn't have to be that way. The Esau, he did not have to go down that road. He could have chosen a different path and gone along that path. Yaakov could have chosen a different path to go along. And thus, you see that these two names keep showing up again and again and again throughout the Bible because they really are representing not only just physically two different groups of people and their descendants, because from Yaakov, from Jacob, from Jacob is coming the descendants of Israel. And through that, you have the legacy that comes to us from the Bible to the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. That comes down through the legacy of Yaakov directly, so by um, the physical part, but also the spiritual aspects, the gifts from heaven, this blessing for all nations that comes down through the Messiah, through the Christ, down to all humanity. Then Esau, Esau in his lineage, and we'll be getting to that a little bit here as we go along, through that lineage is you could say, a very interesting turn of play because Yaakov, his name, and we'll take a look at it in the minute, but just strictly speaking, his name in Hebrew means a protrusion, something that sticks out. It's often referred to as like your heel. So your heel, the thing that sticks out from your foot, and that uh, comes down to a great prophecy that you would have the adversary Talked about there in the garden, Genesis chapter six, uh, chapter six, three. How about that? 
Genesis chapter 3, where the snake is said that he will bruise your heel, but the seed from the woman, the seed from Eve, is going to crush his head. So, thus, you see that the interesting aspect of this, the thing that protrudes or that which is trying to butt into the situation, ends up really being Esau. Because Esau, through history, is really just keep trying to just ram his way and his lineage into Yaakov's lineage, into Israel's lineage, what Israel is doing. But you say another lesson that you get from this particular passage on the flip side of, okay, your, your past does not define you. But on the flip side of that, if we aren't born again, really, if we don't born again, become someone new, a new creation, as the Apostle Paul puts it, if we don't get born again into the best of what our legacy is and then carry that forward, you know, becoming, you, you probably have heard throughout history where you may have a son, either a son that it grows up in a family business and he doesn't give a rip about the family business, but eventually comes along and goes, you know, that is the legacy of this family. I'm going to step up and take it on and then moves it forward takes the family business, moves it forward, and moves to make it a success. So he turned around. He stepped up into the legacy to carry that legacy forward. So that is really the lesson of Yaakov, stepping up into the legacy. And what the legacy is, is a part of what the whole name of this Toledot, Toledot is the generations. And something else we'll see in here is as we recognize the good that's around us and we have to become very, very cognizant or very um, observant of the dangers of following your heart, following your heart, of just going after what pleases you, what's pleasing to the eye and make... It seemed to make one wise. Uh, where have we heard that before? It was somewhere in the, back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Yeah, back to the garden again, yes. And one of the things is that the desire that we should have is to become mature and complete in the knowledge of and the relationship of God, the legacy of God. So, one of the things we go into is a bit of what this name is all about. So the, you could say round one of this boxing match that you have in this particular Bible passage here between Yaakov and Esau. Round one is uh, Genesis 25, verses 19. So a good part of what we see here in Genesis 25 is round one here. Well, it gets off talking about this word that is translated in a lot of different um, translations. Uh, New American Standard has the generations of. Um, it, do you have any different kind of renderings out there of what they are translated, the generations of Jacob? Genealogies? Okay, the genealogies of Jacob. So that word that it comes from, you just peer under the hood onto the Hebrew of it, is what you have called uh, todah or toldot. And that comes from a, a root verb of called tolda, 
And that is one of the, just your little 50-second sec, 50 uh, Hebrew lesson here, is that Hebrew is like a verb-based language, action-based language. And a lot of words that you, you, if you remember back to your days of grammar, you've got verbs, the action words, and nouns, the person, place, or thing words. Well, in Hebrew, you start out largely with the action words, the verbs. And then from that comes the person, place, or thing words. So from an action, then from that gets derived words that are about places. So places, the names of people, come from actions, things that happen. So in this case, you've got what is the action word. And that is often traced for this tolda goes back to yalad, yalad in the generations, what results from it. If you go back to the beginning of your Bible, if you have a King James Version, and you go through those genealogies, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, well, that begat is coming from this word of yalad. Yalad, something comes from something else. That is basically, it's often translated, he was the father of, but we might think, oh, that's his father, one generation. But really, the more root word, it's like it comes out of something else. So that yalad between generations could be just saying, this person is linked to this person. There is a link here. So when you see a genealogy and they say like so-and-so begat so-and-so, and if you look under the hood and the Hebrew is the word yalad, then you're just saying strictly, that this person is a forerunner of this person and, and you know, a, an ancestor. So that is really what you're talking about here. So you could even strip it back to a more core idea that Yalad is getting across what results from. If you have this, Yalad, this. So this, your, what you end up with, results from what it started from. That would be a kind of a, an idea. Now, that idea is extremely important because it's really what's kind of underneath the surface of this entire passage here. Because this word, the generations of, the tolodots of, shows up lots of times, eight times in particular in the Torah sections, uh, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It shows up eight particular times. First of which, they're in creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Yes. I was just uh, going to say, I, I am digging into some genealogy. I, I do ancestry, and especially in the wintertime, there's nothing to do. I just <laughs> <laughs> go on and on. You know, the whole Ashkenazi thing is interesting. You know, you'll get, get it either way. For instance, my wife's got a lot of Eastern European, so obviously she's got 1% Ashkenazi. I'm, I'm 25% uh, Lebanese which is very close to Israel um, for generations, but zero Ashkenazi. So, and then it comes back to what is the Hebrew gene? Because I'm reading another guy who's just said Hebrews hit everywhere all the way to Scotland. And as the prophecy said, Abraham, your genes will be everywhere. So what's a Hebrew gene? What is an Ashkenazi? Sephardic, you know, it's it's a debate. I know that. I've, I've heard that before. 
Uh, so, yeah, that Hebrew gene is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things when you look back uh, genetically, there's been uh, some work that's actually been done this particular year where uh, a PhD geneticist uh, came out with a, a l- report looking at what they, they call the, um, the Y chromosome lineage, which is passed down from between uh, men from one father to son and on downward. So you can see that particular lineage of where it goes. And really, uh, the lineage of the worlds that you see is more related to uh, invasion than anything else. Because you can see that uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, you can almost track it by what you know about your Earth's history. And, for example, the Genghis Khan, you can see genetically Genghis Khan coming in to a good part of Europe has its roots in Asia, in Siberia, Mongolia, is where a lot of that lineage comes from. And you can also see the same thing with Africa, invasions going one way and going the other way, where you have people groups have been replaced by people groups from somewhere else. but. The one thing that is persisting over time is ideologies, what people believe and what their customs are. Those can move from one people group to the other. For example, when you have the, um, the Islamic conquests that came out of Saudi Arabia, spread down up into Persia, out towards India, down through North Africa, up into Spain and such. Well, there's a lot of people groups there, but one ideology that came through that and actually a lot of flavors of that because you've had local customs blended with that one ideology over that area. Well, that you could say is the legacy that has been left behind. One of the the belief systems that were there before had been replaced. So when you talk about the legacy of Jacob, Yaakov, as it moves through time, that legacy is with us today. I mean, we just read from it. That is a part of the legacy of Jacob as persisted for thousands of years down through time, through many people groups to all the people groups that we represent here in this room and many others around the world, that one legacy has moved down through all of it. So when we talk about the first time we meet the uh, Toledot, the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, and you're like, wait a minute, if you're talking about the genealogy, the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, well, really, you could say, well, what is resulting from the heavens and the earth? What is its major contribution to everything? And what do you see from Genesis chapter one is the pinnacle of that us the image of god it talks about there on day six the image of god and then at the end of day six it was tov ma'od or very good it was a very good creation the other days good the completion of the sixth day thus very good the image of god through mankind is now come into the world. So the legacy of the 
heavens and the earth is for people, which is, you could say, contrary to a big ideology that is being taught today. People are an afterthought. A, we're in a forgotten backwater on an unremarkable star in a, a pretty mediocre galaxy in a forgotten part of the universe. Um, no. What you see is quite the opposite. So when you say, well, what is the legacy that's come down to us? The legacy of Jacob down from the garden has been that the image of God in the world, us, is it's amazing. It is a great testimony and a gift to the whole creation is people. And then you go and you see the next one that shows up in chapter 5 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 5, and it talks about these are the Toledotes of Adama or of Adam. And what is that legacy? And as you go and you read chapter 5, that legacy compared with the, the genealogies that follow, what comes from Adam? Now, sin comes from Adam, but you could say uh, sons of God in general, because you see later on it, when you get down to chapter 6 with the flood, and it talks about the sons of God and the sons of men. The sons of God, the sons of men. The legacy of Adam is the sons of God. And thus, you see that you end up with a situation where you have violence over the entire earth. And the, the works of people's minds was only what? Violent all the time. But there was one who was righteous in that generation. Yes, uh, Larry. Um, I've heard it said that, that Adam was made in the image of God. Yes. But everybody else was made in the image of Adam, of man. Mm. I don't know how far that goes, but well, that's, that would be. that's one way to put it. And you could say Eve was made in the image of God, because when you see the... Uh, she was made in the image of Adam, though. He was bone of his but, bone but and you, flesh of his yes, flesh. Yes, but you see, like in, in Genesis one twenty six and 27, it talks about he made male, a man and male yeah. and female in the image of God. He created them. So Eve, too, is made in the image of God. She's the mother of all living. So you could say, okay, yeah, we're, we're in the image of them, but they both were made in the image of God. So that, that idea carrying forward this image of God and mankind, both for good and for bad, are far different from all of the animals. Just in the, fa in the fact that I'm up here moving my mouth and there's, there's vibrations going through the air and it's getting to your ears and then you can actually understand what I'm saying. That's... Oh, innocent. Yes. Yes, innocent. Not innocent. Not innocent, no. And that's a whole part of what we've talked about with the lesson of those two trees that you see in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 of that decision to go, where are you going to go for your knowledge? Do you want to go to something that looks like it's going to provide knowledge, the tree of knowledge of Good and bad. Hey, it's got good branding, right? It says it's good for knowledge, right? But what does it only do? It just reveals that you are missing something. You're missing something, and you've driven now a wedge between yourself and the creator of heaven and earth. So what you thought was going to make you wise has really made you foolish 
by going that route. And the whole rest of the Bible is about getting back to the tree of life, which is where true knowledge comes in. True knowledge of good and bad is you choose the tree of life. That's what the, the, you can actually see now between good and bad. And at the end of all things, sadly, we're going to have a lot of history to look back and say, yes, we know what good and we know what bad are. And we've seen a whole lot of bad. So now we know that the good is to go to the tree of life and not keep looking for wisdom somewhere else because that wisdom is always going to be lacking. It's always going to be leading us not to choose life, but to choose something that is really leading toward death and a downhill slope on it. So thus, when we see that the legacy of Adam, sons of God, people that are moving toward God versus the legacy of Adam's son, Cain, his legacy is what? Adam removed from the garden, Cain removed even further. So Adam may be removed from going back into the garden, but Cain removed from even being that far. They have to go even further away. So you've now separated, separated. So Adam's legacy is, yes, outside the garden, but still kind of following along, at least with the idea toward God. Cain removed further out. That's that legacy. Yes, and marked. So thus, when you see then that the Toledots of Noah or Noah, so the what proceeded out of Noah was someone righteous in his generation who the job is to preserve the living spirit. Every creature that has the breath of life in him, the nefesh chaim, the living breath. That is what the goal of Noah is. So thus, when you see, like the Apostle Paul is talking about, hey, we are ambassadors of the Mashiach, doing what? The message of reconciling the world to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the sent one from heaven, which is all about what? Preserving life. To get people, just like you see at the end of Deuteronomy, Hey, I've set before you, Moses is saying, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. So thus, we, with the ambassadors for the Messiah, are thus also saying, hey, choose life. The way of the Messiah, the way of the Christ is life. Go that direction, not, not the other direction. So thus, when you see kind of after the flood, that the sons of Noah, as you see in Genesis chapter 10, is another uh, progression out, the Toledot of the sons of Noah. Those go out into the three main groups of the peoples of the world with you know, Shem, Ham, and Japhet, or Japheth, and those being the three main people groups of the world, and as they separate out. So thus you say, okay, you've got now separating out into the nations of the world. But then as it progresses into chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, talks about the Toledot of Shem, one of the sons. So thus you're saying, okay, 
all of the nations of the world have come from the sons of Noah. They didn't come out of Africa. They didn't kind of emerge out of a, um, some primate past. No, they emerged from a boat after a flood that wiped out everything else before it. So thus, out of the three main sons of Noah that came out of the boat, out of one of those sons then starts the legacy down of Shem. This is where we, we call them the Semitic peoples. comes from the name Shem. And what does Shem mean? Is means name. So the name has been put upon one particular group of the nations of the world that have come down through that. So then if you move even further down there in, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, the Toledot of Terah. And Terah, oh, yes, Anne, go ahead. Before we what, go further. What about indigenous people? Ah, the indigenous people, yes. <laughs> Diversity and the ind- indigenous. Well, everybody's indigenous and a migrant from somewhere. You know, it was one of those things that has also come out of the... Um, the Y chromosome research is you've seen where these progressions of people have come. You know, for example, um, when they talk about the cradles of civilization, there's what, five? Five main ones. And one of those, we, we talk about, oh, the indigenous people of the Americas. Well, one of those is the Olmec Empire. They're gone. They were indigenous before they got replaced. So there was people here before the other... Um, folks came in from uh, Asia is specifically where they came from, both two directions coming over. So, yeah, indigenous have been replaced by somebody else over time, always one replacing the other, replacing the other. Uh, In Europe, in the Americas, it's the same story over and over and over again. Yes, uh, Larry? They still had to come from Noah. Yes, still had to come from Noah. So. Of one of those three sons came all the nations of the world. So whatever we consider to be indigenous now is a migrant from somewhere that came from the ark. Um, Because that was the big bottleneck down to one particular family. So the legacy, the the Toledot, the proceedings from Terah is Avraham. So now you've narrowed it down from three main people groups of the world to one people group from Shem, now to one from Shem, Terah. And Terah's legacy is, hey, he moved the family out of Ur. He led that family out. And now out from that moved Avraham even further. They called and they left. You know, Terah kind of stopped part of the way. And then Avraham carried that forward, that path that was going from, from Mesopotamia at that time period over by the modern-day Tigris and Euphrates River, modern-day Iraq, that area, moved out toward what we call now the, the Holy Land, a place where modern-day Israel, Lebanon, um, Jordan, where those areas are today. So that progression, Avraham took further. But then you see that out of Avraham, uh, Genesis 25 talked about 
the Toledot of Ishmael or Ishmael. And that is a knowledge of the faith of Abraham. So that knowledge of who Abraham was, who he trusted in, but what do you do with it? What do you do with the legacy that you go with? Then you move on to what we were looking at here today, that the Toledot of Yitzhak or of Isaac, also the faith of Abraham, that trust in Abraham, Abraham's legacy to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. And same thing that came from the sons of Adam, sons of God, back to the garden. So that legacy, you've seen the proceedings from Adam, from the 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 heavens and the earth that's come down, 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 all the way down through all these, it's proceeding down toward this particular point. Yes, uh, Christine. I don't want to derail from this great lesson, but with Ishmael, would he have not also had the commandment to be fruitful and multiply? Yes, and, and that's what you see in, in the blessings that were given specifically to him, you know, that from him had 12 princes, 12 sars, and yes, he was going to be great. And even we saw with Esau, he was going to become great too. But yeah, contention, contention with Ishmael, contention with Esau. Those would be legacies that they would be in contention with, in competition with. Now, it it is very interesting that you see in modern times that, and it's happened in just the past couple of years, is that you've now started to see that the legacy from Ishmael coming down to see, acknowledging what eventually happened with the sons of Esau that came down, is acknowledging who was truly blessed, that the sons of Yaakov were truly blessed, and that instead of fighting, best to maybe become an ally of. So thus, you see that later on, and it came down, and we're getting in the time of Hanukkah, and down into that particular period, is you seeing that Esau to Edom, to the Edomans, fighting, 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 finally down to the time of the Maccabean era with Johan Hyrcanus, where they finally said, all right, stop the fighting will actually be allies together. So hatchet buried at a particular point. And you've seen in modern times that the legacy of Ishmael, Saudi Arabia, burying the hatchet with Israel. You're like, who is the bigger monster? Realize that no, Israel is not the big monster of the Saudi empire. No, it's the Prince of Persia. That's the bigger, the bigger threat. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting how you see these, these long things that have been happening for thousands of years throughout history where people are finally just coming to acknowledgement, well, open your eyes. See who has actually been blessed in this and where the blessing can come from. And to stop having your hands around the neck of the one who gets the blessing in this. And so from all these proceedings from, we can see that 
<laughs> this is really demonstrating the foresight of heaven to be able to see out, to see what's going on, to see where things are happening. And also the insight to see not just what appears on the surface, but what's happening under the surface, what's happening in the hearts of the people. And when the hearts of the people are changing, then the outsides and the greater relations of people will start changing. Yes. So thus when you, when you see the, uh, when you talk about the, the characters of these two particular nations that in Genesis 25, 23, I was talking to Rivka, to Rebecca, that, hey, warring within you are two peoples, one of which, Yaakov. And Yaakov, you could say, described as the blameless man. And why talk about blameless? So looking under the hood again, to said that he was a, um, a, the New American Standard talks, he was a peaceful man. Well, it all comes from the Hebrew word tom. And tom is a word that means uh, complete. You'll see it also when you get into the book of Leviticus. It says you bring an offering. When you bring an offering, bring one that is tom. That it is tamim. The offerings are tamim. They are complete. We, we read about that in Malachi. Don't be bringing in offerings with a broken leg. One's a died by a mauling of an animal, roadkill you scraped off the highway. Don't bring that into the Lord's house. No, you don't bring that in because it said that as we read that in Malachi, you wouldn't do this to your governor, to a human potentate. Why would you be doing this to the creator of heaven and earth? Why would you do that? You know, it's all about respect. You would show respect to a human king. Why? You say because you either look up to him or you fear them. They'll you know, stomp you if you don't show respect. But also, you might actually have some bit of awe about the person in their, either their splendor or their power that you'll say, hey, either I want that or, <laughs> okay, I see that uh, you've, you've got the more goods, the more um, weapons, etc. I can't fight you, so I will just join you. <laughs> so... Compare that, someone who is complete, and maybe ring some bells from James chapter 1, the purpose of going through trials in life is that you may be complete, not lacking anything. If you were to translate that from Greek to Hebrew, that would be Tom. You are Tamim. You are complete, not lacking anything. So conversely, we've got, we've got Esau here. And it's, interestingly, it's described a couple of different ways of he is the hairy man and he's also the red man. He's the, the, the hairy red man or the red hairy man. So those things together. Now, um, hairy is a very interesting thing because you see it often um, described with the goats and hairy goats. And that hairy goatness is seen, it's, com it's uh, often combined with um, kind of rough and tumble because, you know, when you got livestock, you've got sheep and you've got goats and their temperament is quite different, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, goats are <laughs> quite, quite the unrefined side of uh, livestock. So one of those things that you see the big difference is, is the, well, the, 
that hairy side is a, a also a descriptive word that you'll see used in Hebrew for someone that is just a bit unpredictable, an un, kind of untamed sort of thing. So, yeah, more like the beast, you know. But then you also see that one of the descriptors for him, and we saw that last week when we were going through that section of admoni, or described as being reddish or rooty, and that's coming from the word of dom. So dom is blood. Adam is ground. So because Adam, you could see, and particularly if you live in an area where they have like a lot of iron in the soil or something like that, the ground is red. So out of the ground, the ground man is the blood man. Yes, being very grounded, the earthy man. So, and then also you see that described later on because the, the word for Harry is uh, Seir, and that actually becomes an area that's talked about the people from Seir. Is also kind of another catchword for the people of Edom because you have uh, actual mountains and areas um, of the neighboring area of Israel described as Harry. It's a hairy place to go. Yes. So there's the kind of the contrast, the contrast between the, the hairy man, the red man, the connected to the dirt, and the complete man, the one who's not roaming about. Uh, yes, uh, Christine, so sorry, first Tammy, then uh, Christine, sorry. Yeah, reading, when just going over this again, it reminds me of King David. Yes. Even though, on the one hand, he was the man after God's own heart and all that, but it also refers to him physically as being red. Yes. Now, we've come down to say that, oh, that means he was a redhead, like a ginger, and he mm-hmm. may have been. But I'm thinking it's more in the sense of this kind of earthiness, because you think about what he had yes. to do. The blood he had on his hands, that's why God said to him, you can't build the temple. Yes, you did what I wanted you to do, you know, but you cannot be the one to build a temple. Your son, Solomon, who will not have that blood on his hands. He's the one that's going to build the temple. So it's almost like the flip, the reverse. Yes. You have that this earthy man who had to, you know, clean up, clean house a lot. But then the next generation was that house of peace of like you, almost a reverse of the Esau and Jacob. You know, David maybe in a sense was more like the Esau, and then Solomon is like the Jacob who is the the intellect, the man of the tents, the man of peace that is able to then bring about the temple and bring up that all about later on yes oh yes uh, christine go ahead yeah i was just thinking also some of the rabbinic teaching um refers to esau as a pig that it's deceiving can show a, a, if he's down on his quarters he can show a cloven, cloven hoof uh where he's part clean and then also um unclean right Mm. and i always again um sorry to be redundant but it has worked so well for me uh in trying to conquer the beast nature my nefesh my soul and remind it that the holy spirit can squelch it do i choose to be a woman of the red you know my earthy part or do i choose to be an image bearer of elohim and um 
I can only do it with the Holy Spirit ruling over my nefesh. And I always, always think about uh, Jacob and Esau in those terms. Yeah, because like when we were talking about with the, the two trees there, that's a whole part of the lesson of the tree of life and then the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Because the tree of the knowledge of good and bad is all about you know your desires, what looks good, what seems good, what seems to be wise, versus what is good, what is wise. And that's a big differentiator between the flesh, what you want to do, what seems good to do, following your heart, so to speak, and the things that actually are good. Yes, you got that. Because someone was, was talking about that with specifically when they talk about the Nuremberg trials, is when they were putting on trial these leaders from the Nazi regime and their puppet empires, etc. Think people were involved with the most atrociously bad stuff. One of the things that you saw that uh, Solzhenitsyn said, he was saying, "Hey, this is this is something remarkable because what are you trying these people based on? You're trying them based on something higher, higher than anybody. That is what was judging them, because what were they getting up and saying? I was under orders." I was just following orders. It's like, no, there is something higher than that saying, um, you should have looked at those orders and said, do I want to follow these orders? Yeah, you, you can also look at those orders and say, well, if I don't follow them, what's going to result from it? You know, yes. I remember studying in my uh, sociology book about that. They had these people, they were telling them behind the curtain, which they weren't really doing, but they did. They told the people to come in. They, they were shocking him. And the person behind the curtain was screaming, ah! And he, he said, go ahead, go ahead. And they would turn it up and turn it up and keep shocking them. And I was part of a, um, some, something that we had in our, in our book I was learning. I was like, oh, my God. And they did. People did. When someone told them to do that, there's, it's some kind of a, I forget the name of it, what it's called, of when they, they do do what they're told. Because they had people behind a curtain screaming and they would turn up the Richter. This was like in the sixties and seventies, sixties, I think the fifties and sixties. It was, I forget the name of what it was called, but I'm sure we could look it up. It was just shocking. That Is that the uh, Skinner experiment? Was that? Yes. They had people pretending to be screaming yes. in pain. And, um, and, but the, even though the common, even though the common sense was telling them they're screaming and this has to be painful. There was a person in authority of some sort telling them, oh, no, they're not hurting that bad. They're just overreacting. And so you're continuing to give them more and more electrical stimulation to the point that it would have killed a horse. But you're being told by somebody that they're lying and they're not really, you know. And so the, the, this drive to respect authority and to follow it can even override our own common sense that tells us that somebody obviously is suffering. Yes, uh, Larry. Um, I don't know, was that particular experiment or another one very similar where the people were really being shocked? But luckily for us, most of the people gave up at a certain point and so not doing it anymore. The majority of people did say no. Yeah. Eventually, after several shocks. Yes. 
Well, that's, that's a, a hopeful idea on it. But one of the interesting things when you, when you go down and you think about uh, um, that, that kind of came into a, a conversation that some people are having related to uh, something we'll be getting at in several weeks when we move on into Exodus and about the midwives that are there. And when they got the order to wipe out all the children, but they, it's a, they feared God even though when they were getting the edict down. And there are some people noting that the Hebrew is very ambiguous as to whether those midwives were Egyptian or whether they were Hebrew. And you could make arguments either way. But imagine Hebrew, you are subject to a foreign power. If you're Egyptian, this is your own government telling you to do this. So either way, that's... Those midwives made that choice. The higher calling told them, hey, this order is not good. It is actually evil. So that being a bearing on what the legacy is, going from what you have an outside revelation saying, hey, this is good or this is bad versus having something that you want to do what you think is wise. Yes. I also think about one day what we're experiencing with uh, children and what's being taught as good and not, you know, one day they'll be on trial as well and um, wondering how history will look with them as failing to answer to a higher calling yeah. on edicts. And, and see, there was a... <laughs> Kind of interesting couple of books that people often talk about these days, uh, one of which, and they're both written about the same kind of time period back in the first half of the 1900s, one of which was George Orwell's 1984. The other one was Huxley's um, Brave New World. And the interesting thing is people all like to talk about 1984, but that is more of a totalitarian regime where they take their power and they will twist truth, ministry of truth. Truth is what we say it is. We'll even change the truth, change history, because we have the power to do so. And the other aspect of it is the brave new world aspect of it. And both of those have the elements, both of those books have an element that some scholars have called the pleasure principle. And people will have and derive pleasure from their power over other people. But when you see Brave New World, that power was coming and that pleasure principle was coming into play with a different aspect. In that book, they talk about Soma, and that is kind of a placemaker for that which makes you sleep. And then whether it's some sort of a, a herbal or a uh, work of pharmacy that, that puts you into a sleep-like state or just outright hedonism. But either way, either together or separate, both of those things make you completely detach from what is going on around you. So thus, even if you may be in a society that is, quote, free, because you subject yourselves to the pleasure principle, of either the totalitarian state or the libertarian, the libertine state is probably a better way to put it, 
a libertine state, everything goes, you're both still in chains. And that is one of those things where you see the legacy of Yaakov, the legacy of Yitzhak, is in the, hey, there is a way that is good. There is a way that is, leads to life, and there is a way that leads to death. And the pleasure principle, as we learn from the tree of good, are the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, the pleasure principle is on that path. It's on the path to that particular tree, no matter what form it comes in, whatever government you happen to be living under, it will get you one way or the other. So know that if you are pursuing the pleasure principle in all of its various forms, what we call the flesh, that will take you in that particular direction. Uh, Yes, Christine. I was just thinking, you know, uh, right away, Rosh Hashanah came to mind where the blowing of the shofar, awake. Yes, wake up, wake up. You know, it's like we could be lulled into this, uh, you know, since even within the church, you know. Well, what is one of the messages of one of the... One of the assemblies there in Revelation, Laodicea, Laodicea, if you want to say, pronounce it that way, it's the same thing. I am content. It's a very interesting sort of thing because it's the flip side of what we see with, ya- with Yaakov. He is the, the Tom, the Tamim man, complete. But the thing is, what is those of Laodicea? content with they have no idea that they're missing everything they're just complete in their ignorance yes yeah, they, they, they think hey we've got everything we don't need a thing and but what does heaven tell them you're naked you're cold you're hungry you're just wretched you are you know, lukewarm wish that you were either hot or cold you are in the you're in the soma, I don't care. You've just sucked it all in and you're totally asleep to what is going on. Yes. Uh, Larry, did you have your hand up? I'm sorry. Another thing has been occurring to me since we read it, <clears throat> but I'm thinking about at least is that, um, you know, we, we think that the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not lie. <laughs> but it doesn't say thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And Against. And there are places, apparently, where it's okay to lie. It's righteous to lie. Just like you said, first of all, people like to blame uh, Jacob for lying to his father about who he was. And, or I mean, was it Isaac? I forget the names sometimes. But at any rate, Esau, Jacob and Esau, yeah. So, um, and then the, the midwives in, in, in Egypt said, well, they're already... Before we get a chance to even come in the door, they're already delivered. And that probably wasn't true. And apparently there's a, because bearing false witness is like a legal term, really. You shouldn't tell to the court something that's illegal about this person is being tried for something. You're not allowed to be a false witness, not just lying. And that's why in the Ten Commandments it says, bear false witness against your neighbor. Because as you read on and we go through and we get on to Deuteronomy, it explains it even further. It's saying, if you testify in a case and you bear false witness against that, 
What is the result? You get the punishment that you are seeking to inflict upon somebody else by your false testimony. You get that. So perjury, if you are if you are committing perjury in a murder case, literally heaven help you. Because strictly in heaven saying, if you are perjuring yourself in a murder trial, you should get a murder conviction for committing perjury in that case. If you're committing perjury in a larceny case, you should get the penalty for larceny. So, yeah, because what you are, as, as it, as it talks about <laughs> when, you know, we, we say like in the, the second greatest commandment there from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, and we say, you know, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. But the first part of that verse is do not hold a grudge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. So that loving your neighbor as yourself includes do not hold a grudge against your neighbor and you back it up a few verses in chapter 19 of leviticus and it's saying hey you know do not go out and seek the life of someone else and seek the life by either indifference or overt action on it that's how you love your neighbor as yourself you're looking out for someone else so thus when you have the great question in the garden you know Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. Because as you read on there, you see that, hey, if you see somebody's going down a wrong path, your mission from heaven is to say, hey, stop. But also keeping in mind that heaven has shown you mercy, a huge amount of mercy. So treat other people with that amount of mercy and not be looking at this as an opportunity to um, lift yourself up against somebody else. Because, yes, you're reaching out in love to help somebody else, but just realize that heaven has had mercy with us as much as the other person that we are trying to reach out to. So when we... See the section here um, as we get on into chapter 26. It's a very interesting aspect when we talk about legacy, the Toledot of Yitzhak, what his legacy is. When we get on to 26, it seems like this weird sort of uh, departure that you have, you're, you're talking about going on. You got the round one of the boxing match between the brothers, and then you got round two after this. And sandwiched right in the middle of this, you got this thing about the well. And it's you know, really like, well, well, well. It's got two failed attempts at wells. And then you got the third that was successful. And, you know, when you look at what, what's going on here, it's like deja vu all over again. Because we just read about not only famines and having to go somewhere else for a famine, but also, because we saw that earlier with Avraham, there was a famine in the land, so what did they do? They went to Egypt, they went down to Mitzrayim, and uh, then you had the same thing going on there, with the, the sister act, you know, uh, say that, hey, she's my, my sister. Now, Avraham could get away with that one, because technically it was sort of true, it was a half-sister, but uh, with, <laughs> with Yitzhak, it wasn't even close to true as being a relative but distant relative so wasn't even close to true on that one. but 
Yes, yeah, second cousin, but not not anywhere near close to to being the the half sister that you had. Oh, uh, Anne, yes, you have a a question over there or something, Anne. Do you think that, I mean, it's not recorded, but Abraham surely ta taught and talked to Isaac about all the different things that he had done when he was younger. And may mm. maybe, perhaps, he, he, he mentioned about going down to Egypt and telling <laughs> his wife, his sister, and what happened with that. It seemed like it was the same type of family, too. Abimelech, I mean, is that name so unusual or... Well, that's what so a lot common. of people are really wondered about because, strictly speaking, that name Avi means my father, Malek means king. So it could be my father is king or something like that. It could be a title because, like we were mentioning with uh, Paro or Pharaoh, that is a derivation of a Hebrew word that just means big house. So if we were like, instead of calling the president, we call him White House. Yes, White House said today, White House, well, we do sort of say that with the spokespeople saying things, but if it was truly speaking about a person and calling them White House, that would be like Pharaoh, because Pharaoh strictly just means big house. Yes, uh, Deborah. You know, it was said that, um, that um, he even said that they didn't fear God, that's why he did that, but the Pharaohs in those days could take beautiful women from anywhere. Oh, yeah. And so he, you know. Yes. Uh, so he said that because he felt that he was life was in jeopardy, and yeah. because of the way that they were animals, you know yeah. that they would take them from them. Yeah, you know. Well, it's it's one of those things that you you see later on with uh, kind of this progression going from being afraid of losing your wife to the licentious uh, acts of Pharaoh to then offering your only son, the one that was supposed to be the son of the promise. That's a progression that's happened in his life. Now, the interesting thing of that is that, you know, you have the son, Yitzhak, the one that was offered the one and only son, the son of the promise, is now the one saying, hey, I've got to save my skin by doing the same sister act routine with the folk there in Philistia. Now, looking at where this, this is taking place, we're talking about they're in Gaza. So we've got a map up here that, that shows some of these ancient areas. So kind of like if you think where the Dead Sea is today in Israel, between Israel and Jordan, if you just kind of head west, straight out to the coast, is the area where you would say of the ancient area of Philistia. I mean, really, modern-day Gaza is almost almost identical to uh, the ancient area of Philistia. Philistia was a little bit bigger. See on this map uh, showing that, I mean, these are ideas on where there was no real surveying records that we have at the time period. Uh, some of what we have uh, listed in, in the Bible where it talks about we go from this area to that area and uh, up north and then straight out to the sea that's like ancient surveying, but you're not having GPS markers and no um, survey tags stamped down into the ground. So these are kind of rough ideas on where Philistia is versus Moab versus Edom. I mean, we have ideas on where some of the landmarks are, but where some of the boundaries are is a bit of a, a guess. So that is the idea of where the wells would be. We know sort of where Gerar is. Um, 
And that Garar being, you could say, kind of the modern-day eastern border of modern-day Gaza, um, that is the area that is thought to be the Valley of Garar and where Garar is. So when it said that he moved out, moved out of the populated areas of Philistia and you could say modern-day Gaza because those, those settlements go back where Gaza is today, Gaza City is today, and goes back thousands of years. They find settlements you know, of the, the ancient uh, Philistine um, yeah, the pottery, they, they find pottery. That's, that's where you get the idea and where they make the connections between Philistia and the Greeks because a lot of what you see in ancient Philistia is Greek in the uh, design of pottery, the, the way they do things. is different, but it's very similar to Greek uh, architecture and stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, Isaac leave the land? Sort of. He moved, it says, as we've seen in the reading, it says he moved out. But when it says, then he kind of, he kind of settled there, and we're just going to get to that in a minute. Well, we'll just get to that now. But that's, that's a great segue, moving out, because this idea of moving out is really kind of a key aspect of why it's like, okay, uh, redig a well, redig a well, and then I redig another well, and then they're okay with that. But the first two, they weren't okay with. And a lot of folk have looked at this and saying, well, perhaps what you see going on here is this words that are translated here that we have in English of sojourn and dwelling or living. Now, I'll just take a look under the hood a little bit of like in Genesis 26.3 when it says that the instructions from the Lord is, hey, famine's on, go sojourn in this land. Don't go to Mitzrayim. Yeah, to Yitzhak, yes. To don't go down to Mitzrayim like your father did. Go to Philistia and sojourn there. But the interesting thing of sojourn is gur. That's what is translated there as sojourn. And the lexicon there, the theological word book of the Old Testament, has the uh, various ways that that is translated as abide, be gathered, to be a stranger, or to dwell. But if you move on further, like the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon has to turn aside. So you're kind of like you're at, you're on a course, but you kind of veer off, like to a rest area or off ramp or something, and you linger there for a bit. It's like you're you're on the highway and you're going, and you just get off in an off ramp and you go to a convenience store, and you're kind of hanging out there for a while. That's the idea of kind of like gur. But the idea of ger, that's where it's a, so we're talking about gur is a verb form. Now, one of the nouns that comes from that you might recognize is ger. Someone who is a ger, a sojourner, often described as a foreigner. You see that show up in the Exodus. If you're, someone is a ger, depends on, circumcision or not, as to whether they participate in the Passover with you. So that is the distinction, and you'll see uh, kind of the interesting thing of the theological word book of the Old Testament has this idea that shows that the root means to live among people who are not blood relatives, thus, rather than enjoying native civil rights, the ger was 
dependent upon the hospitality that played an important role in the ancient Near East. When the people of Israel lived with their neighbors, they were usually treated as protected citizens. Foreigners in Israel were largely regarded as proselytes, and that's a ver- variation on the word of Ger. So the interesting thing, and when we were we, we talked about that in passing with Stom and Gomorrah, one of the big things that's related to that was selfishness in its various forms. The lack of hospitality. If you're in a climate where you treat the ger with respect, Saddam was treating the ger, the foreigner, the sojourner, the you know, person who got off the off-ramp and is hanging out there with utter contempt. He wanted to attack them and dominate them subjugate them humiliate them that's what they were doing in Sodom, and thus that road down to the road that leads to death was carried all sorts of things with it because like when we were going through romans chapter one like we were saying with the the generations that start back with the garden once you tip that first domino and you see it, it's described in romans chapter one when he's saying, when you don't take the knowledge of God and you don't respect that anymore, you start tipping, and then the dominoes just keep falling, one after the other, after the other, after the other. It says God gives you over to it. It's like, okay, you want to you run away? So, okay, well, have fun with it. And then it just keeps snowballing and snowballing. And you see at the end of Romans chapter 1, the behavior of the people is reprehensible. Murderers, idolaters, you know, they're insolent with their parents, and on and on it goes. Yes, uh, Alex. Uh, so the gear were always to participate. What couldn't gear do? Now they had to be circumcised yes. if they were going to stay with them. And that was and that was the idea of the the sojourner who is in right. your midst. Right. And that is one of the the great pictures of Israel is welcoming right. the sojourner, but then. You know, we, we, we saw that in passing when on um, Shemini Yetzirah when we saw the last couple of chapters of Ezekiel, and it talks about that the sojourner in your midst will become as one who is native-born. That being the ultimate goal of the kingdom of God is that those who are far off are brought near. That become, like you see in Ephesians, they become a part of the commonwealth of Israel become part of the commonwealth, and then with the goal, hey, you become citizens. Like you see in Acts chapter 15, people come in from the nations every Shabbat. They hear Moses preach. They go through the Torah over and over, and they become, you could say, assimilated in. They say, all right, just like with Ruth and Naomi, you say, hey, my, my people are now your people. And my God is now your God. So that is the relationship. Yes. Yeah, instead of, instead of making accommodations where you have the, the multiculturalism, that is indeed where you saw uh, David and then Solomon fall apart. You make all these marriages with these women from other nations to do treaties but they're not assimilated. And so they bring in all of their stuff in. 
and your legacy gets diluted down to nothing. Um, yes, uh, Larry. And then Apostle Paul then said, in circumcision, it was not of the flesh, but of the heart. Yes. And he's talking about the, what we called the Gentiles at the time, right? Yes. So we don't, I don't know if that means that, that they actually eventually need to have absolutely have the, the right done. It's the cart before the horse. They become yeah. in to the nation, and if they want to do so, they're saying, hey, this is what, this is what it's a part of the nation. You don't force it upon them. You don't say, you must do this to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's the one thing that Paul rails on hard in Galatians. Do not do this. You know, it was, was that how, was that how the, the, we came into the knowledge of the kingdom, into the Mashiach? No. So you see that in the book of Acts too, with the whole thing after um, Peter's vision. It's like, hey, how did we accept the Spirit? How did they expect, accept the Spirit? Same way. We just know more because we come from this legacy that has carried on the legacy of the knowledge of God down. We have less to learn, less to unlearn, but still there is only one way into the kingdom of God. Only, only one way in. Yes, uh, Christine. Um, the same thing with the women that became captives, mm. you know, that um, the law was to shave their head and to allow them to go through mourning, yeah. you know, and, and choose, right, to remove some of that beauty and to choose. So it's always been that way for the Gar coming in to the nation, coming into the promises. Are you willing to leave what you had out there and be a part of us and come in when we just don't see that anymore. But even in modern day Israel now, they're so, you know, limited. Like you have to have, before you make Aliyah, you have to have passed the pedigree mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So, you know, we pray, we pray for modern day Israel as well. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that you see in the instructions then that Isaac received was, hey, you are to be a gear there. You're to, you're to gore, you're to sojourn there, live temporarily in this area of Philistia among the Philistines, but that's not going to be your home. But what you end up seeing is he's, as it goes on there in verse 26, verse 6, chapter 26, verse 6 of Genesis so Yitzhak lived in Gerar, and that lived there is from the verb yashav, meaning to sit, remain, or dwell. So it's, you're putting down roots there. talks about planting crops. <laughs> and this, this form of the word is saying, yeah, you are doing more than just being there temporarily. You are living there permanently. And so one of the things you see as it moves on to verse 22 of chapter 26 of Genesis, and it says that he moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. That's where he moves over to that valley of Gerar. So he's kind of moved out into the suburbs, so to speak, of Philistia, out of the main ancient city of Gaza. And now they don't have a problem with that anymore. It's because you know, here's a sojourner in here putting down 
roots redigging wells because in in the ancient world water was everything i mean it's getting back to that today now where you have wells you dig a well you are laying claim to something and thus the redigging of these wells he was laying claim to the legacy of avraham that avraham had dug these wells but it wasn't that time yet it wasn't the time for the full reclaiming of the area where avraham had been so he was to kind of be living on god's time for this and not trying to kind of force the time period saying okay you are supposed to be sojourning not dwelling here at the moment but there would be a time where thus the people of god would be making this area the land of rest not the land of gur but the land of yashav that would come later the land of dwelling the land of rest that would be the promised land the land of rest same place same geography but it would come at a particular time later and it's it's a very interesting thing you know it talks about first that's the the iniquity of the canaanites had not yet reached its full so there was a particular time period and it's a very interesting thing when you see that little kind of a a little almost passphrase in there when you when you think of it and you think well they just went in and they wiped out all the canaanites there was a long probationary period that was going on in that area before before it was that they came along because you have and we see it in passing when we get over into the book of numbers where you have um you have the the <laughs> prophet you know we call him Balaam or Balaam well he had some sort of connection to god wasn't totally foolproof wasn't com- totally complete but he had some sort of connection to god the lord was actually speaking with them and archaeologically we know he was a big deal in in that area at that particular time period they found uh temples kind of you might say a, a shrine so to speak that's got his name on it you know Bilam ben peor the son of peor so he was somebody special at that particular time period so the lord was speaking to the people of that area but i guess eventually it's like all right their iniquity their detachment away from the things of god had just gone too far it's like all right so now it's time to get a different residence in here time to churn change over the tenancy in this area yes and uh and then uh, alex that's interesting because i think about how um how yeshua was born and um and and was saved by egypt at at some point along that way you know and miss irene but even going back further where um where uh i'm thinking of uh, david got master he he pretended to be crazy at one point trying to hide from saul and he was saved by the philistine the philistine people in that philistine area as well yes and and so that maybe that whole that whole timing schedule 
also between Moses and the time that uh, before Moses, when Abraham was saved by going to Egypt too at one point. Um, so the, the time period there were 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 is becoming the fullness of time, so that when the Passover happened, that that time was up for the Egyptians to to be destroyed at that point. Yeah, and and uh, the destruction of of uh, of I'm thinking of Gaza, but um, but anyway, somehow. <laughs> kind of got muddled in my yeah. mind here. Well, you, you bring up a very interesting point, is that you had these, these empires, gigantic empires. Uh, at this particular time period that were Avraham is in, um, and they, they mentioned in passing that Avraham was buying, these, uh, the, buying the cave there in Machpelah from the sons of Chet. Now, the, the Cheti Empire, what we call them the Hittite Empire, was gigantic. It was huge. We think of Egypt, but Egypt and the Hittite Empire met in the Holy Land, and they fought back and forth and back and forth and back and forth there in, in the Holy Land. And they, they married their daughters between. There was one of the big deal of one of the Egyptian daughters that was married off to the Hittite Empire. But that particular thing of what did that do by the the Hittite Empire coming down and subjugating Canaan, the Holy Land, it, it turned it from the Wild West into an outpost of a pretty sophisticated, at uh, the time, empire. I mean, th there, was, there was a pretty sophisticated writing that was going on, record-keeping in the Hittite Empire that they've dug up, up in uh, modern-day Turkey. So they civilized to a certain degree the the holy land and egypt in the same way did a similar sort of thing and the egyptians had a way of storing grain kind of forward thinking commerce sort of thing so you would have ways that you could even out the the famines that would come from time to time through that but egypt and the hittite empire those were you could say tools, toys, with the, the kingdom of heaven. And what was being done that was actually monumental to the whole earth was a guy who was a ger in the land. He was a sojourner. Avraham and his progeny were sojourners in the land until they came out of Mitzrayim, finally, to become occupiers to yeshav the land, to dwell in the land, to find that rest. They were nomads, even if they were in the area that was going to be theirs. So we think in a, in a similar area, we nomads in the world, in the land, but you see it's described in the prophets, in Revelation, where this heritage is going to be. And you just say, hey, May it be next year in Yerushalayim. May the peace of the world, the peace of Zion, go out into all the earth. Yes, Alex. Yeah, that, that well story is a strange story, I got to yes, tell you. Yes, it is. Um, now, they usually named wells, mm -hmm. but did the first two get forgotten? They're just some <laughs> other kind of biblical example. 
Obviously, the third one is the yes. famous well. Yes. Um, the well, it's interesting. It's the well of the oath. And, you know, well of the oath or the well of the seven, because, you know, seven's involved with the transaction, involved with it. But you could say it's the well of the take it to the bank. that You were saying, hey, when you, when you follow along with uh, the legacy that God is putting forward on this and trust that that is going to be the case, you can take that to the bank, that eventually there will be this land that is truly yours. But the first ones, um, I could imagine it's almost like a gangster conversation. <laughs> These guys are strangers, and they're like, that's my well. <laughs> no, I just don't. No, yeah. that's my well. And Jacob's like, all right, look, I'm not going to get an argument. He goes and does it again. Yeah. So somehow those weren't the wells for him. Yeah. Right? But they eventually would be for the descendants because, you know, eventually that would be a place that would eventually be subjugated. But it would take a long, 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 long time. Because cause <laughs> when, when you think of it, we're, we're talking about the, the sons of uh, Esau, the sons of Edom. That didn't get resolved until like the first century BC. So that was a long, long, long time where. Edom was at the throat of Israel, back and forth, vassal state, you know, taking over some territory, back and forth, out of Israel over time, back and forth, until finally it was like, all right, that hatchet was buried, that animosity was taken care of. And you could say, you now have a peace of a sort. But that's something you see with Philistia too where the original conquering of the land did not fully take Philistia. Philistia remained there. And remember, that's described as because you did not deal with this, they are going to be a thorn in your side for a long, 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 long time. Yes, yes, that would be, yes, <laughs> yes. boo for a long time. It would be a thorn in the side. So, yeah. Those seven mountains are in our own mind and body mm. and soul. Those are spiritual and that we are born with these mountains, whatever they be for each of us, we have those same um, empires to get rid of in our own mindset, whatever it be, you know, mm. pride or, or fear yes. or whatever it is. There are, I forget the labels. I did that years ago and I, 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 and I, I was like, oh my goodness. These, these situations are spiritual yet, but they happen to us physically. We have to overcome these kings too. Uh, what was there, seven or eight of them? Eight kings? They were with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah or something like yeah, or that? Yeah, just when, any, when you hear some of these Bible stories, there's oh, a yes. number of kings. There's five in this particular area. There's seven here. But we have those, own, we have those same things to overcome too, cities within our own town and our hearts that we have to overcome. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. Okay. Well, especially when you go in to take the land, you, you have to say, uh, what, are the, what are the strongholds that are in your land of rest? Ah, yes. Six and then seven, yes. Six and then seven abominations that then uh, come upon your life. So, yes, it, 
is a similar saga that you see represented lots of different ways, is that you have a legacy that comes down through time. And this is a long-running legacy that comes all the way from the beginning of creation. And it's handed off from one to the other to the other to the other. So just like with Yitzhak of going to redig those wells, of consolidating what was given to him, it's like, do you want to take up what has been set before you? Or do you want to just try to blow everything up that came before you and then see what results from it? That's, that's been something that has been uh, a tried philosophy now for over 150 years that's coming down is you, you basically go through, you criticize all the structures around because from those structures have become a dominating power. And you blow those things up so that you can free yourself from all of those structures around you without taking care of, hey, what is actually uh, supported by that? It's like, you know, if you're involved with construction or anything like that, just willy-nilly going into a building and just saying, I I don't care what that is. I'm just going to start cutting down walls, taking down the walls, taking out the supports. I have no idea what I'm doing. Just set dynamite all around the structure and just let it rip. Well, you know, you know what will result from that. If you've seen things where people cut down load-bearing walls, that's not a good idea. They call them load-bearing for a certain reason. It's that it's holding the structure up. So one of the legacies that you see is that the universe not created just with chaos and thus order results from just throwing more chaos into it. No, it results from the order being put on things. Then you have something usable come out of it. So just like with, you could say, with the potter, with the clay, that's talked about in the prophets, that's you have the Lord being the potter, we are the clay. Right. Praise the Holy One that the approach of heaven is just not to take us as clay, throw it at the wall, and uh, maybe see what happens. We'll end up with the, the Jackson Pollock approach to creation. No, this is something where you have the artistry that goes in to shape it, to form it, to be something. And as it's talked about there in the prophets, that we as the clay have to be realize that we are in the master's hands and the master is forming us, shaping us, even reshaping us into something. But that something is going to be much more glorious than what we were before. So... Yes, line upon line, precept upon precept. Now, the interesting thing is, is that in, in, in Isaiah, that is, uh, when you read that, it is treated as a yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Sav la sav, kav la kav, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It is, it is treated with disdain because... You see the same thing we read in that passage in Malachi chapter 1 and 2, that you are treating the Lord with indifference. It's like you want the Lord to just go away. It's just become too burdensome over time. But what is the legacy that's actually been handed down from one to the other to the other to the other? 
that is what is the lifeline for the entire world. So we have this legacy that's been handed down to us, and the Mashiach, the Messiah, is a part of that legacy. Now, we are a part of the legacy grafted in to this great nation, the people, the people of God, to move this forward into the world and to carry the good news of the kingdom is that this world is not of chaos and for chaos. This world is from order, for order, for life, not for death, destruction, but for life. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.